Today on the emdocs.net podcast, we first look at awake repositioning or proning. And for the second part, we have an interview with Dr. Joshua Russell on the use of chest x-rays in COVID-19. Manny, let's start with awake repositioning. First, what is it? Awake repositioning entails moving conscious patients into several positions compatible with respiratory support therapies. While this is also known as awake proning, we like to use the word repositioning as we are not only using the prone position, but several others. Let's talk about why this may help patients. Supine patients experience several problems. First, ventral alveoli overinflate and the dorsal alveoli undergo atelectasis. They also undergo VQ mismatch. Repositioning or proning improves this ventilation perfusion matching, reduces shunt and lung compression, recruits posterior lung segments, and improves secretion clearance. Now what about the literature behind proning? Well, literature suggests patients with ARDS have better oxygenation and reduced mortality compared to patients who remain supine. But what about those with COVID-19? A recent study published in Academic Emergency Medicine included 50 patients greater than 18 years with COVID-19, hypoxemia defined as less than 90% not improving with supplemental oxygen, and the ability to self-prone. The primary outcome was oxygen saturation in a presentation. When supplement oxygen therapy was applied with nasal cannula or non-rebreather and after awake proning for five minutes. Secondary outcomes included intubation at various time points. They excluded those patients receiving non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, those who are DNR-DNI, cardiac arrest patients, and those that are intubated. 36% of the patients required intubations ultimately. However, authors found a medium saturation of 80% at presentation, which increased to 84% with supplemental oxygenation. But with proning, saturation increased to 94%. While these results sound pretty good, there are some limitations. Patients didn't receive high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. It consisted of a convenient sample with no randomization. There was a focus on disease-centered outcomes, Oxygen saturation was only measured after five minutes of proning, and this came from a single center. While there are some significant limitations, this study provides us with some valuable information. Manny, how can we incorporate awake repositioning or proning into our practice? First, you need to carefully select the appropriate patient. These patients are typically tachypnic, tachycardic, and hypoxemic. Patients who should be considered include those with normal mental status, those who can communicate, are able to move by themselves, and are otherwise hemodynamically stable. Hypotension or pressure use, requiring immediate intubation, unstable spine injuries, thoracic injuries, recent abdominal surgeries, or agitated altered patients are not appropriate candidates. Awake repositioning can be used in conjunction with nasal cannula, venti mass, non-rim breather with or without nasal cannula, and high-flow nasal cannula. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation can also be used with repositioning but requires some assistance as it's tricky. A lot of our Italian counterparts have done this successfully with a helmet interface instead. Next, and this is really important, you need to explain repositioning and the benefits to the patient. The post has a great handout for use on shifts, so please check it out. Ensure that oxygen support systems have adequate tubing length and that appropriate patient support such as pillows are available. Patients should have the call light or button within easy reach. Of note, this is not a situation where you can just walk away for 30 minutes. In fact, it's probably best to move these patients to areas with direct lines of sight. 
Continue all monitoring, including blood pressure, oxygen saturation, respiratory rate, and pulse. Once ready to begin, assist the patient to the first position and document vital signs and work of breathing. While you may choose to use proning alone, we recommend switching positions. Each position is held for 30 minutes to 2 hours, after which the patient moves to the next position. First, have the patient start in prone, then move to the right lateral recumbent, sitting up 60 to 90 degrees, left lateral recumbent, and then back to prone. The nurse and the physician should evaluate patient worker breathing and saturation 10 minutes after the position change and again in 10 to 20 minutes. If the patient's oxygen saturation decreases after moving, first check that the oxygen is still appropriately connected and in place. If connections and placement are appropriate, then move the patient to the next position. If the work of breathing or oxygen saturation do not improve, escalate oxygen therapy or try a different position. This might be sitting upright. Ultimately, awake repositioning is a potential tool you can use for your next shift in patients with hypoxemia and COVID-19. And now for our interview. Hello everyone, we're back with Dr. Joshua Russell, an emergency physician, contributor to Urgent Care Wrap, and editor-in-chief of Journal of Urgent Care Medicine. By the way, Josh, congrats on editor-in-chief position for Urgent Care Medicine. Want to tell us real quick what you have in store for the journal? Sure. Thanks for having me, first of all, Britt. It's uh, great to be one of the first guests on your uh, your podcast and excited for the things to come. Um, the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine is uh, a project that I, uh, I've recently uh, taken charge of, and I work with our clinical editor that many of your listeners are probably familiar with, Dr. Mike Weinstock. And really, uh, it's exciting because uh, as large as urgent care has grown, we still have the only peer-reviewed journal in urgent care in the entire world, actually. So uh, it's, it's a lot of um, opportunity and responsibility, but we've uh, really kicked off this year starting to focus on publishing original research because it's not something that this journal has done previously. So we're, um, you know, as much as we can get people submitting original research in the urgent care space, we'd love to, to publish it and um, start the ball rolling. And if you look back at the history of emergency medicine, that's really the path that um, led to success in emergency medicine getting um, recognized as a specialty was kind of believing that we were our own specialty and and starting to study um, how to care for patients in the emergency department and and hoping to see the same thing happen for urgent care over the years to come and happy to be the the leader of the platform to to get that out to the world. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. It sounds like you have some amazing things in store. Uh, well, I, I know you're a busy man, so let's get down to it. Uh, as you discussed, your journal is going to have a great study published by Mike Weinstock that we're going to repost on EM Docs, mainly focused on the use of chest x-ray in patients with COVID-19. Josh, now, why is this study so important? So the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the version of this coronavirus, is really, as we're finding out, a multi-system disease. And patients are presenting in a, with a number of different phenotypes. And the critical care folks are starting to talk about these different phenotypes of the H and L and ventilator management. But as we're seeing on the news and in the epidemiology data, the vast majority of people with this disease, thankfully, are not all that sick. And they have a much less severe phenotype. And these are the patients that um, often are staying home with their illness, but some of them do choose to present to urgent care settings or uh, if they do present to the emergency department are triaged to the fast track area. And the question is, if you have someone, you have their vital signs, what additional testing is necessary? And there is some data 
obviously, if you can get a rapid turnaround and you have it available to you, a PCR test to say yes or no, this is the coronavirus, that's very helpful. But for the places, which is still, I believe, unfortunately, the majority of the U.S. who can't get that rapid coronavirus, what auxiliary testing may be helpful in determining you know, diagnosis, prognosis, and management? And a lot of the early radiology studies that have been published out of China and, uh, to a lesser extent, Italy, studied CT. And there's no doubt that a chest CT, as is almost always the case for any disease, is much better than a chest X-ray, much more sensitive, much more specific, maybe even more specific than the PCR. But how practical is it to get a, a CT scan? For most urgent cares, first of all, don't have them. And second of all, we know that there's a tremendous amount of cleaning that is required to sanitize a CT scanner after it's used for someone with suspected COVID. So even in the emergency department where there is a CT scanner, CT is not practical. So chest x-ray is the modality that's available for these ambulatory patients that are presenting with suspected COVID. And we wanted to know how useful is that chest x-ray in determining diagnosis, prognosis, and management for these patients. All great points. And you know, I'm going to tell you, I work at a center that's blessed having the rapid PCR, but still having a chest x-ray is going to be something super important. And I'm definitely not CTing all these patients. So what did this study actually do? Yeah, I mean, the reality is that we, we can't CT them. So, so we wanted to look at an urgent care setting where there is no CT scanner, and that's taken off the uh, table out of the equation. So what we did was uh, use a group of patients where they were seen in a group of urgent cares in the New York area, where it's, you know, currently was and still is the epicenter of the, the coronavirus in the United States. And there were two things that were true for all the patients that were included in our study. One was that they had a positive PCR for COVID that was done on the day of their presentation. And two is that they had a chest x-ray that was ordered at the discretion of the provider that was seeing them. And among those group of patients, we had 636 patients that met those criteria, which by far makes it the largest study yet to date on radiography in ambulatory patients with COVID. And then after we collected that data, what we did was we took the actual imaging studies and asked 11 radiologists who were kind enough to volunteer their time and expertise to reread those studies. Now, they were actually made aware of the diagnosis of COVID, and they could see the initial read, but we instructed them to you know, as much as they could um, put that out of their mind and, and disregard that read and interpret the chest x-ray to see what whether it was first of all normal or abnormal, and if it was abnormal, how severely abnormal and what specific abnormalities were they identifying? Great summary of the design. It's really interesting, especially in the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak in the US, but what were the results? So the most salient finding was that the vast majority of the patients on the initial read, it was around 70% had a normal chest X-ray. Even when the uh, unavoidable bias of you know, knowing that the initial read was positive and that the patient had COVID entered into the radiologist's evaluation, they still called 58% of these chest x-rays normal, which is an astounding number for people that are that had this disease that we think of as a severe uh, respiratory disease. And these are also a group of patients that not only had the positive COVID test, but also had a chest x-ray ordered. So I'm sure there were other patients that had the PCR testing, which ultimately returned positive, that didn't have a chest x-ray. And then if you take a look at all of the chest x-rays that were normal or just 
mildly abnormal, that is a number of 89%. These are the chest x-rays. You pull them up and you're not seeing something that's catching your eyes, like the things that they're showing on CNN and things like that. As a secondary outcome, we looked at what types of abnormalities are most common, and the most common findings were that the airspace disease was bilateral, multifocal, interstitial, and had a predilection for the lower lobes. Also interestingly, and this is something that's been uh, replicated in other studies, mostly on CT scan, is that lymphadenopathy and, and pleural effusions are, are quite rare, um, less than 1% for both of those. These findings are pretty remarkable. I mean, over half of these patients had an initial normal x-ray. Like you said, most of these abnormalities were either bilateral, multifocal, interstitial, and in the lower lobes, which is definitely reflective of the available literature right now. Taking these results, what's the most important point for you, and what does this do for your clinical practice? That's really where the rubber meets the road, and it's such a great question because before COVID, we didn't really think twice about checking that box for the chest x-ray. If the patient wanted one, we'd order it. If you know the patient didn't want one, we'd still probably order it a lot of the time because it was something that we could do. And patients come in, and they, you know, for better or worse, expect that there's going to be some objective testing ordered. In the era of COVID, we have to second guess that because, first of all, a lot of these patients, if they're coming in, we want to keep them secluded in one room because of infectivity. And then second of all, with the rise of telemedicine, we're wondering, or at least I'm wondering, is how many of these patients need to be evaluated in person at all? And this is where the, um, the change in practice has come for me is that I really think about that question that we really should ask for every test that we order, but specifically in this area is how is this going to change my management? And predominantly, I, I think, is there something besides COVID that's that's on the differential that I really need to consider? And is a chest x-ray going to change that? And then secondarily, is it worth the risk in somebody who has no respiratory distress to expose other staff and patients to them spreading their respiratory secretions um, outside of the room? And, and secondarily, I realize now that the chest x-ray is not really good for ruling in or ruling out coronavirus. So if I'm using it as a diagnostic test, it's, it's a poor choice. Um, and I kind of look at it analogous to the EKG and ACS. Like you can have a normal EKG, we all know, and still have an acute coronary syndrome, but you're probably not going to drop dead in the next few moments from a V-fib arrest. Similarly, these patients that have normal chest x-rays, they may have COVID, but they're not likely to have that phenotype that's going to progress to rapid uh, respiratory compromise and need intubation. So it's not really telling us anything that we, we don't already know about the patient by just looking at them. And um, I think you want to talk about this next, So, I, I, but it, there's some guidelines that, that uh, support this sort of practice of limiting diagnostic testing that have come out. We should probably discuss those from the College of Urgent Care Medicine and the UCA, and they teamed up with ASEP, so it's nice when there's these joint guidelines that come together. These guidelines are going to be featured in your posts, but kind of the big takeaways from this are – First, your category are those patients that you're really considering discharge, maybe some home monitoring. And in these patients, are going to be symptomatic, and they're going to be, the big point is clinically well-appearing. You're going to have a resting oxygen saturation over 94%, no desaturation upon ambulation. And the other big thing is they're not tachypnic. And uh, this is going to be potentially, I mean, again, those very well-appearing patients because many of these patients with COVID-19 who are presenting in the emergency department are going to be tachypnic. 
Your next patients are those that you should consider transferring to the ED, and these are going to be almost any other patient. Josh, can you go into the specific details for these patients? Sure. I mean, it's really two broad categories that the guidelines address, and that is vital signs and appearance or uh, patients that have chronic conditions and are elderly. And so if you start mixing one or more of these criteria, you should really think strongly about sending the patient to the emergency department. And obviously, clinical judgment needs to be at play here, too. I mean, some of the criteria like change in mentation, I don't think if that were a standalone finding, you would say, well, they only have one point and they shouldn't go to the emergency department. But it's most noteworthy, I think, when you look at these is that there is literally zero testing that is involved. It's all clinical gestalt, um, vital signs, and, you know, the patient's baseline medical history or risk factors. And what isn't included in this, and this is why we're including it, I think, is it supports the, the findings of our study, is that chest x-ray is not mentioned at all. And I think that that is true. And, and until we find that there's some drug that is going to, you know, with, if you have certain chest x-ray findings, this drug will reduce the likelihood you're going to be intubated. We really need to think uh, long and hard about ordering that chest x-ray and, and probably also educating our patients that the chest x-ray is, is not a reason to, you know, come into the emergency department. With the caveat, obviously, that, you know, in this era of COVID, we were talking beforehand that you're not in a hot zone particularly, nor am I in Chicago, and we're seeing a lot of patients that are uh, coming in quite sick with other things. So it's good to remember that there are many other illnesses that can affect our patients, and, and if, unless we're certain that COVID is what we're dealing with, the chest x-ray probably in respiratory patients is still a good choice, uh, at least for initial screening. Definitely. All great points. And Josh, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast, and best of luck with the journal. I'm sure our listeners are going to hear from you a lot more. Thanks, Britt, and best of luck with your podcast. This rounds out our summary of the key EM docs posts. Thanks for joining us, and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Mm-hmm.